Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List. Uh, before we get into today's episode, I'm going to read uh, an email uh, from an anonymous listener. Uh, Dr. List, I have a joke for you today. Can you please use mine? Okay, um, we will use yours today, sir. Um, okay, here's the joke. What's the best time to go to the dentist? 2.30. 2.30. I, I actually really like that one. All right, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Pod Girls, Pod People. Uh, it's your boy, Dr. Markless, coming at you today with another episode of the Primary Care Podcast, a late night edition of the Primary Care Podcast. Doing this late at night instead of getting sleep like an idiot, but that's okay. Um, I actually, um, I have been sitting on this topic for a while. Uh, this came into, this actually request for a, a podcast actually came in um, from a, an actual listener of the Primary Care Podcast, Nancy, who's a primary primary care physician, had emailed me and said, hey, Dr. List, I listen to all your episodes. They're very helpful. Um, I'll spare her last name and place of employment just in case. Uh, she didn't want me to say it. Um, but Nancy, a primary care physician, says, can you do a topic on treatment and management for dementia? Uh, as in, you know, when to start Nepazil, Romantine, Romantine, etc. And I, I, I'll tell you, I, I do get some other requests for episodes, and I absolutely have plans to do those episodes. But usually, it takes either a new article on the topic to get me. Um, I have them in the back of my head, and if I ever read a, a new article, I'm going to jump on those topics. The other thing is that um, sometimes. I have these episodes where I'll see a patient in clinic or have a patient ask me a question and it reminds me of a, a, a an email that a listener has sent to me and I do appreciate all the emails. Um, and this is a case where uh, Nancy's question about management of dementia, I had a case and a patient asked me a really specific question on their uh, Alzheimer's disease medicines. Actually, one of the family members um, and the, the husband. Uh, so the wife and the son asked me about, you know, if there was something else to do or if we should be doing something different. And it, it brought up this memory of this email. And why I didn't immediately do this when I got the email, you know, uh, several months ago, quite a long time ago, um, was that the research in Alzheimer's disease is incredibly depressing. And we're going to go over some of the studies. And there haven't been many landmark studies recently. In the past couple of years, there have been some research in Alzheimer's disease um, and the new medications, uh, which we'll talk about, that uh, target the amyloid plaques. And it's been really depressing, right? Because it doesn't, nothing really works that well. And, and to answer Nancy's question, there are pretty clear indications for and against medications and when to use them. And I'll give my little nuanced take based on what the actual data says. Um, Alzheimer's disease has a special place in my heart. Um, it was the first uh, 
science paper I ever wrote. I had to, to write um, an English paper. I had to write a, a topic um, in high school, going all the way back to high school, and Alzheimer's is my topic. I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. And so this has always been uh, near and dear to my heart. And when we talk about medications for Alzheimer's disease, really we're going to talk about the two big ones, right? Cholinesterase inhibitors. My drug of choice in, in that realm is Dinepazil. It's been around forever. Uh, it tends to be the cheapest out of the three major ones used for dementia. I'm not going to talk about the other two, but I won't judge you if those are the ones you use. Uh, galantamine and uh, rivastigamine. Again, this is why I don't use these because I can't pronounce them, but Dinepazil is really great. Um, I shouldn't say really great. Dempazil is my choice. And then the obviously the other choice is memantine. Uh, there's the new one, which is, like I said, the monoclonal antibody um, targeted for amyloid. That's aducanumab. And we're going to talk very briefly about that, um, but that's not going to be something that primary care providers are going to use anytime in the near future. Um, I can promise you that. So when to start? We'll really... You know, denepazil specifically, as we're talking about cholinesterase inhibitors, the data on more advanced Alzheimer's disease is really weak. And so really all of the data points to mild cognitive impairment. So we're talking any MMSE, MMSE of under 26, basically, or a MOCA under 16. And I prefer the MOCA just because it's easier to do in the clinic. But if you if you go through MMSE, that's great. I'm not going to judge you. Uh, i judge you a little bit because MOCA is better. Um, not technically better, but better in my brain, so that makes it better. Um, but having a, just a, a borderline MMSE or, or slightly in that early mild dementia slash mild cognitive impairment, that's probably the time to, to start it if you're going to start it. And when you start it, right, here's what the actual data says. And again, the, the recent data on this, there, there's just not much. You know, there's no new landmark studies showing that there's some great use for it. In 2003, um, there were two different meta-analysis. One was in JAMA, one was in a journal I'd never heard of. Actually, just kidding. It's the Canadian Medical Journal. Oops, sorry, Canadians. Uh, I don't have many Canadian listeners, so I can talk all the smack about them I want. Um, but and, and both of these studies, I'm, I'm just going to read some of the, the number needed to treat, basically. So in the one from the Canadian study, um, or the one that was published there in 2003, you had a number needed to treat to stabilize... So uh, they, they looked at 16 studies and they, and they looked at what cholinesterase inhibitors did. And this was kind of a, um, a author's description of the improvement compared to placebo in these 16 different studies and 7,000-ish patients, 6,000-ish patients, 5,000-ish patients, sorry, um, that one person would benefit in terms of stabilizing their disease out of seven patients treated, right? So number needed to treat of seven, um, just to see a stabilization, you'd need to treat 12 people to see a minimal improvement or better, um, and a number needed to treat of 42 for a, quote, marked improvement. And meanwhile, cholinesterase inhibitors have a number needed to harm of 12. And 
that's that's pretty significant. And um, denepazil has incredibly common GI toxicity, right? And it is dose-related and usually does get better with time. Most patients uh, improve on that. Um, Devnepazil compared to the other two actually has lower rates of GI side effects. One of the reasons why I like it um, has lower rates of nausea, diarrhea, um, upset stomach, uh, weight loss, anorexia, but those are very real. And that's already a major concern with patients, especially with Alzheimer's disease, anorexia, lack of appetite. Um, it's incredibly common on Denepazil where we're talking like a quarter to, uh, you know, 30%-ish of patients in these studies can have weight loss, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. That's significant, and that's already a big concern with patients. So um, bradycardia, hypotension, uh, heart block, syncope, all can be related to, you know, cholinergic drugs. And so that's still true with denepazil. Um, sleep disturbances also incredibly common, and uh, vivid dreams, insomnia can be common with denepazil. Uh, again, we're talking like less than 10% of patients, but again, something that as we talk about sundowning, sometimes the nighttime disturbances, inability to sleep, being up at night can, can be made worse actually with cholinesterase inhibitors. So uh, food for thought that you're going to have a number needed to harm of 12 and a number needed to see a minimal improvement of 12. Yeah, I mean, and that's what we're talking about, right? That's in this one this one meta-analysis. The other meta-analysis is, is really stark because they looked at 29 uh, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials, okay? And these were all in the patients where the target for denepazil is in that mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, okay? And some of these were bigger trials, some of these were smaller trials, and they used functional scales, they used, uh, and so when we talk about, um, these were functional measurements, right? So activities of daily living, in instrumental activities of daily living, right? ADLs and IDLs. And I'm just gonna read you this, this sentence because it's kind of alarming, right? Um, so on an 120 point scale, Denepazil and all combined cholinesterase inhibitors, I shouldn't just label denepazil, but all cholinesterase inhibitors on a 120-point scale improved patients 1.72 points, which was statistically significant, but it's a 120-point scale, and it improved their, their score 1.72% compared to placebo. Okay? Yeah, that's, that's really trash. And if you look at placebo compared to um, uh, cholinesterase, inhib cholinesterase inhibitors compared to placebos on ADL scales, you're talking about like 0.1 on these on these very small scales, um, 0.09, right? Uh, standard deviations, okay? 0.1 standard deviations. We're talking very minimal impact. Now. They're in this in this same in these in these studies. Okay, the authors mentioned that it would be the lack of decline seen in some of these studies. While there wasn't much change, um, there wasn't much improvement. The slowing of progression um, in that in that first study, that first meta-analysis I talked about, where that they had that 1.72 change in a scale of 120. They talked about the fact that this would be um, 
like preventing a two months per year decline in a typical patient. So you're going to decline 10 months out of the year, but two months out of the year, you're going to stay stable compared to somebody who wasn't on the drug. And how much that, uh, that decline is noticeable, that's really hard to say. So when I, when I talk about denepazil, um, I always go back to the fact that the harms and balance, the harms are oftentimes very similar to the benefits. And that we can certainly try it and we can certainly work our way up and see if there's you know an improvement on it. Um, you know, a couple of studies, I know I, I reviewed up to date as part of this reading too. And one of their paragraphs says like, it's quite variable that uh, some patients have a 50% improvement uh, or 50% of patients uh, show no observable benefit while a smaller proportion up to 20% may show a greater than average response. But I mean, these, these responses that we're talking about are not that impressive. Um, and so I always tell families, you know, we're, we can certainly try something. Uh, if you have side effects, we can discontinue it. Uh, we can try to see if you notice an improvement or at least a stabilization because, you know, the number of treats only eight for stabilization. Um, and if that helps them, uh, you know, deal with it and, and get to a better place or experience some life events, then sure, it's worth it. Um, you know, these tend to be very inexpensive drugs as long as patients aren't harmed with them. But again, a number needed a harm of 12. So I, I talk very freely about the harms. Um, there was very, uh, this, um, the very specific question that came up in clinic was, we don't notice a change in his progression on denepazil and patient was in agreement. He hadn't noticed any change in his progression. Family hadn't noticed a change. And the son, who was a very smart guy, really like him, said, I, I saw a news article, um, and it was older, that said that if you stopped an epizil, it could put you in the nursing home faster and decline faster. And this came up, and so this is what triggered the, um, the discussion. And that is actually um, a mixed bag. There were two different completely conflicting studies one that said that yes uh, withdrawing from denepazil could lead to earlier need for a nursing home um, and another study basically said that while yes that happened um, a little bit more frequently in the first two to three months after discontinuation by three years both groups whether you continued on it or discontinued it had exactly the same rates of nursing home outcomes when they actually followed the trial through all the way to two to three years so that's the advice that i gave my patients where basically it probably uh, for some patients it might um, make them go to nursing home a little faster but in, at the end of two to three years it's not going to matter either way you know and take that for what you will if you want to discontinue your meds we can discontinue it now what about in advanced alzheimer's disease there's absolutely no benefit. There's no study showing a significant improvement. So once they get to um, basically a significant level of Alzheimer's disease, and we're talking about you know MMEs in the you know teens, that's probably when denepazil does nothing anymore. And again, if they're already in a nursing home, it's very reasonable to discontinue it. Um, at that point, some I know a lot of providers, just expert opinion wise, once a patient starts on denepazil, it's there for life, or until they get to a point where 
um, they can't function or they fight medications or they um, aren't it's very difficult to force them to take it and it's it's harming them or staff or more concerning or causing more problems than it is good then it's you know then it's usually discontinued i personally tend to stop it earlier because the approach of continuing the med till death to me i mean i think you have to talk about quality of life and you have to talk about a patient's um goals and what the family's goals are and once they hit memory care or once they hit nursing home sometimes those goals change. And am I really going to make a patient take a medicine that could potentially cause side effects or be difficult to take, you know, or or bug them to take this if it's not doing them any good? It likely isn't helping them at all. And so I, again, anybody who's listening to this podcast knows I, I, my, one of my favorite joys in medicine is stopping medications that aren't helpful um, because I love stopping medicines and avoiding polypharmacy and cleaning up med lists and, you know, not making patients take meds they don't need to be on. And Dinepazole is one of these where I absolutely try it um, and I absolutely make no, I don't give Dinepazole a placebo effect. I'm very clear and upfront that I think that it can help and it does help some patients at least prevent the slide of it. But some, for most patients, it's not very noticeable. And if that's you and you have side effects from it, it's not worth it. Um, Nemenda, aka uh, Memantine, is a completely different um, ball of yarn because it does nothing early. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't have much for side effects compared to the cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, really, uh, there, as there's a couple of studies that I'm going to pull up here and talk about, but they are literally identical to placebo. Like in multiple studies that aren't even drug industry funded, um, almost no change from mantine to placebo. Uh, similarly, the benefit, especially early on in Alzheimer's disease, doesn't do much. Right. Um, once you get to moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, then there might actually be benefit, right? Um, and there's there's a really great Japanese study, and it's from 2016, and that's probably the most, oh, 2014, sorry. Um, and it's actually a really, really well done study. The images are amazing. Uh, you can really win me over as an author if you have really good graphs. Um, and these are patients whose baseline mean MMSE is 10, right? And they use a Japanese uh, score that I don't know the relevance of it. But these are people with like barely double digits. Half of them are are in single digit, um, many mentals. And the data is actually pretty good and seeing a noticeable actually improvement. Um, Placebo continues its general decline in all of the different versions and and, and dosing um, graphs in the in the study um, from 2014. Actually, actually, if you want to read the study, it's great. Um, uh, expert opinion of pharmacotherapy is the journal. I can't say that's a really reputable journal, so take it for what you want. Um, but May 2014, um, and efficacy of safety of memantine in patients with moderate severe Alzheimer's disease, results of a pooled analysis of two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials in Japan. Um, so, I mean, I don't know about the uh, amazing quality of the study, but the statistical analysis of it is really solid. And we're talking about like a 20% improvement um, in some cases or a two point on that MSC. So it's not 20%, but going from like 10 to 12 um, changes in their scale, which I don't know what these these other scales mean or how big the scales are, but like a significant improvement, whereas placebo continues to decline and decline and decline. An improvement for the first like four to 
16 weeks, there's actually an improvement, especially in the first four weeks. But then, of course, memantine is not um, some amazing drug by any stretch, and you know patients end up being back to where they were uh, a year or two later in in all of these trials, right? Um, or you know below their baseline in in two years, still above placebo, um, but definitely below their baseline. So these are so memantine. Once you start memantine, you should start it when likely when they're in nursing homes, right? Um, but aren't aren't fully demented yet and you know f- want to prolong that kind of uh, um, phase of life and so that is really difficult because that is a conversation for family because with an mm mmse of 10 i am not trusting that patient with um, being able to be competent enough to make medical decisions and yet an mmse of 10 is bad enough where I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that a lot of patients would want to prolong that phase of life for another two years. Again, individual patients, individual families, this can be a great choice for a medicine um, based on the actual trials, right? But it's not effective in that mild to moderate. Uh, in, in the mild to you know MMSE of 20 and MMSE of 18, there's not a lot of data to support the drug. And so it's hard because in the mild phase is when you'd like to prolong that phase for as long as possible, right? That's that's the whole point of denepazil, right? Do when you have a single digit, when you have a single digit MMSE, is it worth it for the family and the patient? to prolong that phase by a year or two and maybe even improve that phase. So again, that's a, uh, to answer Nancy's original question, when should I use memantine? It's really a very nuanced drug based on the data of where it lies, right? In terms of that, maybe there's, uh, people are really starting to notice a struggle, really starting to lose their loved one. for good, and and so maybe this is something that you can try in severe to you know end of moderate to beginning of severe Alzheimer's disease that might bounce them back for a year, right? Um, and uh, here's another study. I'm on now. I'm on up to date. Uh, a, cl- a clinical trial of 295 patients with moderate severe disease who are already taking Nepazil, and then basically if you added uh, memantine. Patients received assigned memantine had a higher standardized MMSE and a lower score on their, um, you know, ADLs, which you know, based both apply benefit compared to not receiving memantine. But the average scores were 1.2 and 1.5 points um, to be clinically important, and that's where the rub lies. Is that there is absolutely a statistical improvement with memantine in this phase. But is it clinically meaningful, right? Is it is it enough to bring their loved one back to give them more time in a good phase? Or by that phase, are they already saying goodbye? And I hate to be so depressing about our options for Alzheimer's disease, but it's just depressing. And I can tell you that I tend to have conversations with families, not even patients, about memantine. 
Um, when I talk to patients about it, I talk them out of it in early stages because I don't think it does anything, and there's no evidence to say it does anything for um, uh, mild, uh, mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's disease. Um, and most of the time when that MMSE is 10, most patients, most families aren't wanting to prolong that phase any longer. Um, maybe, again, your families are different and they want to do everything in their power, um, but, you know, Take that for what the data actually says. Um, Aducanumab, the monoclonal antibody against amyloid, is pretty garbage. Uh, it definitely helps reduce plaque on specifically on amyloid-specific imaging, but so far the clinical outcomes are pretty garbage. Uh, again, very mild improvement, if any, uh, not really clinical meaningful, uh, significant amount of potential side effects that are very severe. This is not memantine we're talking about. Um, and for primary care, I'm just saying stay away. Um, if they want to, if your patients are desperate and want to talk to a neurologist about this, fantastic. But at this point, uh, I don't think really anybody is using it around me that I know of. And I, I can't imagine anybody using it unless there's a significantly uh, landmark study showing that there's some population where this is beneficial. So sorry for the depressing talk today. Uh, but this is a really important topic, and I know I went long. I'm almost at 25 minutes. Um, but this is a uh, this is this topic is near and dear to my heart. Um, I've I've read so many studies, um, you know, over the course of my entire life, and it's very depressing to see there's not a ton of new great pharmacological agents coming out. The agents that do come out seem to suck. Uh, the data isn't showing any kind of new creative uses for uh, treatment or or improving outcomes, and so. That's the niche of how to use these drugs. And uh, don't be afraid to discontinue denepazil. Um, don't be afraid to not start memantine. Um, but it's okay to try. And it's okay to um, have conversations. And that's probably way more important. Um, having your patients, when they're in that mild cognitive impairment phase, stay socially active, stay physically active, uh, stay engaged. Um, it is eat healthy, get lots of sleep. That tends to be way more beneficial than any pharmacological agent. And that's what I focus on with my patients. That's what I focus on. I say there are things that we can do to help this. The studies say exercise helps. The studies say eating healthy, getting good sleep, um, you know, staying physically, cognitively, mentally, emotionally active. These are all beneficial ways to uh, push this uh, nightmare down the road farther and farther. Um, and to start that as early as you can start seeing some, you know, uh, senior moments, all right? As soon as you can see some mild cognitive impairment to, to encourage that as much as you can. So again, a depressing topic today, but hopefully helpful. Uh, thanks, Nancy, for the email. Um, I, I do have lots of, like I said, other emails sitting in my inbox. I'm just waiting for a good research study or waiting for a good uh, uh, new trial to come out or a topic to come up with patients so I have more uh, reason to dig into it. Um, but thanks for listening. Again, this has been Dr. Markless with the Primary Care Podcast reminding you you don't need to stay up all night. I'm doing that for you, staying all up, uh, staying all up tonight, uh, all night tonight to do this podcast episode. Uh, thanks and have a great week. Bye.